Um, and uh, I want to thank Ben, Ben Romberg, that is, uh, for uh, convincing me or for, uh, yeah, for telling me to speak about the Parsha because I was never sure what to talk about. The Parsha is a good, uh, uh, a good place to, you know, there's really a lot of... Well, Michael fen- always makes notes at the prayer, then he's not here. Okay. It's a fascinating Parsha um, because this tells, uh, you know, the story, basically a story of the founding of our people. Uh, the book of, we're in the book of Exodus now. We started talking about, you know, the Jewish people and their descent into slavery. And then uh, at the beginning of the first Parsha, the first Torah section of this, uh, of the book of Exodus, we meet Moses. And Moses eventually becomes the leader of the resistance or the rebellion or this attempt to redeem the Jewish people. And last week's Parsha, Va'era, which means, and I appeared, it's part of the negotiation that God has with Moses. It's, we hear about the, these plagues. And the, the bulk of last week's Parsha and this week's Parsha is one narrative, one discussion of the description of the exact, what, all the details that happen with the ten plagues. Uh, it stops in the middle. Someone asked, why does it stop in the middle? You have the whole narrative. You have seven plagues in last week's Parsha, last week's Torah section. Three in this. Why does it stop in the middle? I said, well, it's 121 verses you know it's long enough that probably the, the editor said you know this is a good place to stop you know we'll pick it up next week so so you have that and then ultimately it culminates at the end of the parsha with the plague of the firstborn and the actual exodus so this is where it happens uh where the nation of of slaves is going to turn into what is today uh the juggernaut that is the jewish people you know that this is where we all started um, so that's the, that's the baseline. I, I look at last week's Parsha, this week's Parsha has been really two, you know, two parts of the same story. You know, you have the, 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 um, uh, Moses coming to Pharaoh, uh, trying to, uh, trying to lobby that he leave, lets the Jews leave. And he says, no way. And he does the, he does the sign. He takes the staff and throws it on the ground, turns the serpent and Pharaoh's not impressed. And all of Pharaoh's sorcerers do the same. And, Eventually says, if you don't listen, we're going to have all the waters turn into blood. And, and that happens. And then Pharaoh promises to, to let the Jews go. And eventually reneges in the promise. And it repeats again and again with the frogs and the lice and, you know, the wild animals and the, the, the death of all the animals. And then the, the hail. And then this week's Parsha. Um, did I miss any? I might have missed some. Uh, this week's Parsha, we have uh, the final three, which is the locust, the, uh, the darkness, and the death of the firstborn. So, oh, and, and another thing we see in our Parsha is uh, we see this uh, uh, instruction, this commandment of the Passover service. And that is that all the families, this is all going back to, to, to that times, but also going to be perpetuated and it was in existence uh, for thousands of years in Israel, uh, that on the holiday of Passover, uh, they, uh, there's a special um, a sacrifice, but it's not really a sacrifice because it's only partially, it's only partial sacrifice, but it's a special, special celebration of consuming uh, a, a small animal. That's when we know the Passover Seder, we always have that uh, roasted, uh, uh, roasted uh, uh, chicken, right, that we have. And that's a remembrance for, for the roasted sacrifice of, of, the, uh, of the, the Passover sacrifice or Passover service, whatever. Uh, so that's also in this week's Parsha. And then... You're not talking about the Seder. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shank, whatever they call it. Oh, the Shank. Shank, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and, and then we have at the end of the Parsha, um, 
we have the Exodus, and we have uh, also we have um, a commandment to have a mitzvah of tefillin, phylacteries in English. Doesn't, doesn't mean anything. No one who doesn't know what tefillin means is oh phylacteries. Oh okay, what is tefillin? I don't know. Oh phylacteries. Okay, uh, and then and then and then and then mezuzah. Um, the, the, yeah, so tefillin are, uh, is a commandment in the Torah. It's four, four places in the Torah we're commanded to wear tefillin. The word tefillin appears in the Torah how many times? Ben? <laughs> I'm looking at you, Ben. How many times does the word tefillin appear in the Torah? I don't want to venture a guess. That's right. Absolutely zero, zero times. It's, well, it doesn't say, it says totafot. Right, totafot. Uh, the word totafot actually is one of the few instances in the Torah Nice little trivia. That's actually not Hebrew. Um, it's it's some African uh, African language. The Talmud says that tat and is Afriki, some African language. Uh, there's a few words in the Torah that's not that's not in Hebrew. Uh, we have words in Aramaic. What are the words in the Torah in the Aramaic? You know this. <laughs> <laughs> you have no idea. Uh, though there's a few words in the Torah that's in it's in Aramaic. That's Yidgar Sahadusa. Um, when uh, Jacob and his father-in-law they they erect this monument or this you know DMZ between them, so the Torah says that Jacob called it Gal Aid, which means a mound of testimony, and uh, and Lavan called it Yigar Sahadusa, which means the same thing, just an Aramaic. Interesting little uh, little tidbit. So there's a few questions that I think we can ask uh, on the parsha. I think to open up discussion. First thing we hear about the parsha. God commands Moses, go to Pharaoh because I have hardened his heart. Hardened his heart. And I know uh, Diego or Aaron told me that this group likes to debate a lot the you know, mechanics <laughs> of, uh, of free will. Of what it means. Mike's not here. <laughs> yeah. What does it mean that he hardened his heart? So that's, I'm saying this, there's, a, there's a philosophical problem or maybe potentially, where we see this, you know, core quality of humanity, and that's their capacity to choose, or you know, to choose their path and to make decisions, make moral decisions, is being temporarily suspended. Uh, so that's an interesting thing, you know. And the, and the question is, you know, why would God do that? Is it fair? Is it, you know, why did Pharaoh lose his ability to repent? Um, yes. <laughs> you know, and I, I think that this, you know, the question um, could maybe expand to, let's say, uh, is there a point where maybe someone would lose that? You know, could Hitler have repented? Is a question that you get a lot. You know, could, could someone who had reached such a level of such an, uh, you know, such a an apex of of evil, could such a person come back and, and you know and repent for this? So that 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 would maybe fall along those same lines. Is it possible maybe that Pharaoh and maybe Hitler and people that have uh, devolved into into evil to such a degree that maybe they lose their capacity for free will. So that's maybe one way to look at it. Uh, or potentially, uh, this is the the this is the um, the option that I think is actually uh, more correct, or maybe also correct, or legitimate for sure. And that is that because God had a uh, he had an agenda here in Egypt. He wanted to achieve a certain end, as it says. I want Pharaoh to see my might, so to speak, to see all these wonders and all these miracles. 
because God had the, uh, the, the destination um, set in stone that had to happen, therefore it only would have happened if, if Pharaoh's will was suspended. Uh, that's why uh, extenuating circumstances uh, um, uh, compelled God or to, you know, to, to, to do that. Yes, Tom. One, one the Ron Paul talks of this. Uh, that, again, I, I mentioned it once a while back, but the only will that exists is God's will, and no other will does exist because in the end, God's will will prevail, and that's it. So no matter what we choose, even though we think we have free will, in the end, we really don't have free will because even the choice we make ends up accomplishing God's will in the end. Now, so that's, that's but but there's micro, have. there's micro macro in in what you're saying. Because because that could be misunderstood as us not having free will, and if just like if you, any, any discussion on free will has to incorporate the Rambam Maimonides in yeah. his discussions of free will, and he goes out of his mind to make it absolutely clear that there's no option that free will does not exist. We have we have to have free will, and it's something that we all know intuitively, and you know we punish uh, people that do misdeeds, and we, there's evidence, clear evidence to to it. But you're saying on, on on a micro level we have free will, but ultimately either way the will of the Almighty is going to be fulfilled. Yes. So. While you may have an opportunity to choose one way or the other, God's uh, choice and decision uh, will be fulfilled regardless of your decision. That's what you mean to say, right? Yes, exactly. Okay. Well, that's a separate discussion. How does that? How do? How, how does the? How does that coexist? God, God's kind of predeterminism of our understanding of, our, of what our decision is going to be because God's not existing within time. Well, it's it's not it's not a simple answer because it's a very it's a very difficult yes. So the other the other in the first few times where it says that Pharaoh pardoned his heart, yeah. it was a choice of Pharaoh to pardon okay. his heart at that point. He made the decision, no matter what was going on around him, he said, I'm, I'm going to harden my heart. That's right. The, very, the, first, five, the first five plates, yeah. Pharaoh did it on his own. Yep, did it himself. Because he didn't care. He didn't care what was happening. He hardened his heart. That's right. The way that we, I, I think we could look at this as well, when it says that God hardened his heart, is that now that he's gone through all these things, he gets to the point where he's getting not his own choice per se, but now he's a little upset at what's happening around him, that God's doing these things. And he chooses to harden his heart because of what God has done. Before he did it because he wanted to do it. Now he's doing it because of what God has done. Okay. In that sense. So, so, he, just- so God, through what God is doing, Okay, but does that raise a question? So there's a few questions that I want. This is what I really wanted to get to. But your your what your your descriptions raise a question. So let's assume that Pharaoh had his full faculties of decision making ability. Let's assume that he did. Right? From the fact that God hardened his heart, we can deduce that had God not hardened his heart, had his free will not been temporarily suspended, what would he have done? Rich, what would he have done? He would have let the Jews leave. So it seems like this is, this is the, the, the point that we want we want to emphasize here. It seems like the plagues and all these miracles that happened in Egypt were not about convincing Pharaoh to let them leave. He would have let them leave if not for his heart heart been hardened. Sounds weird. If not for his heart <laughs> been hardened, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> right? That made sense, right? But the question is why. What is the value of the plagues on their own account, on their own accord? On their own, what value do they have 
if Pharaoh was ready to convince that for plague number five, why do you have to have the additional plagues? Or, yeah. That's what it says. So why? Okay, let's let's ask that question again. So why? Why does why does God need to have the Egyptians Egyptians believe in God? Because it goes back to we're studying the book of Daniel, and if you look at Nebuchadnezzar, he does the same thing. He walks through the garden, he says, Look what I've done, look how awesome I am, and he's believing to himself that he's done all these things. He doesn't believe in the true one, only true God. But who cares about Pharaoh? We care about the Jews. Not about. I know, but I'm saying, so from that perspective, the Egyptians believe Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's a God. So now God's saying, you know what? That's fine. You don't want to let him go. I want the people to know, want to let him go because I'm going to tell them to give, give them gifts anyway. But I also want them to know that I'm God. Mm-hmm. You're not. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I, I, I like it, but I think we could also say that this was all part of the education of what's going to be this great nation. You know, remember, the uh, the mission statement of the Jewish people cannot be any grander. What's our, what's our collective nation's mission statement? What does it mean to be Jewish? Like, what did we sign? What did Abraham sign up when he chose? Like, what do you sign up for? Like, what, do, what, do, what, do, what does it mean to be? What's the mission? What's the responsibility of the Jewish people collectively as a nation? To what? Illuminate. To illuminate, okay, finish that, finish the thought. <laughs> well, it's, to uh, be a uh, like the nation, light of okay, the nation, uh, to be God's representative of the world, priests. yeah, a nation of priests, uh, well, yeah. a kingdom of priests kingdom. and a holy nation. Yes, holy we nation. are supposed to be God's representatives in the world. Morality, right, justice comes from the Jews teaching the entire world about God, about morality. And if you think about it, you know, Abraham emerges in a world that's totally pagan. He brings ideas that are, were so out there, so outlandish, the idea of one God, all the powers consolidated, you know, in one entity was invisible. These ideas were so radical at the time. But if you look now in hindsight, they have made tremendous inroads in the great, the whole world. Basically, you could talk to any person in the world, whether they agree with you or not, but you can have a dialogue. And uh, about one God. And in fact, most people, even if they're atheists, even if they don't believe in God entirely, but they would agree that if God does exist, then God's invisible and God has all the powers. So, so that's just, you know, on, on a big picture, we see kind of the great innovation that, uh, that, um, that Abraham and the Jewish destiny brought to the world. But even, you know, even if you were to break it down, you look at, you know, the kind of culture and the civilization that we've had, you know, the idea of education, literacy for everyone, the value of humanity, right? All men created equal, all these ideas that have influenced the world to the positive, they're all ideas that we've had in the Torah for thousands of years, you know? So we already see how the Jewish people are influenced. And you know what? What are we? 0.02% of, of, of the population? We're nothing, we, we, we're an afterthought. We don't we don't move the scale when you think about you know global uh, demographics. We're nothing. We're a speck. We're we're insignificant. Right? We're so insignificant that we shouldn't even be told that we're insignificant. Like we're so we're so ultimately insignificant that we shouldn't even be discussed. Actually, it's the opposite, right? But in fact, it's, it's the opposite. Yeah. In fact, it's the opposite because that's that's our destiny. And one way or the other. We're going to be those people. So that is the, the, the vision. 
it seems like here at the formation of this nation, we become a nation at the Exodus. Makes it, the Torah makes it abundantly clear. Beforehand, we're called Hebrews, the idea of uh, Israelites. That happens now. Um, we, uh, we don't have a Torah, remember. Our mission and our nation is linked to our Torah. The Torah is the blueprint that we're going uh, uh, to use to impact the world and become you know, this, uh, the, 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 the impetus for bringing the world to its completion. That happens at the Exodus. So, this process, these ten plagues, are, are fulfilling the role of, doing, of, of the education that we need as a nation. And to, together with that... The ten plagues you're saying were to show the Jews. The Jews, yes. And not together with that, we'll get to that. And together with that, the Jewish people are going to have to make a transfer. As a slave, right, you're beholden entirely... Your master, beholden entirely to your master. You don't have a say in the matter, in in, in, in anything you know in your life. The Torah says that as a prerequisite for being God's nation, we have to be slaves, which is bizarre. Like Abraham, you're going to be my guy. I chose. Let's celebrate. You're going to be slaves. What does that mean? Seems like the slave mentality of being totally subjected to the will of the higher authority is necessary for our nation. So therefore, the, uh, the entire experience in, uh, in slavery in Egypt, that is to formulate our psyche as a nation, our mentality. We have subservience, subjugation to Pharaoh. And now we have to realize, okay, fine. This dedication, this, uh, uh, this loyalty that, we, uh, that, uh, that we're beholding to Pharaoh, we have to transfer that to God. How are we going to do that? Pharaoh considered himself a god. Remember, Pharaoh's always in the water in the morning. Why is Pharaoh so? Because Pharaoh told his people that I am a deity and uh, I don't need to go to use the restrooms. So that's why every morning, Pharaoh, like uh, all humans, you have to, he's like this the whole day. I was like wondering, why is he like this the whole day? Because he only went to the bathroom in the mornings uh, in, the, in the Niles. Moses always met him there. Pharaoh needs to be humbled. Pharaoh needs to be the one who's screaming, of course God exists, the God of Israel is true. Because that's going to impact the Jews. And when they see Pharaoh himself, who they till then were completely beholden to, then when he's screaming on top of his lungs that the, that, 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 that the invisible God is the true God, when he tries to usher the, the people out, get out, get out before we get completely vanquished, that is, is going to make a click for, for the nation. So on a, on, a deep, on a deeper level. That's why Pharaoh had, Pharaoh and the Egyptians, they had to be humble to such a degree. It wasn't just about just getting them out, getting them out. It's about educating and formulating and molding the nation into the nation that's going to be God's people and uh, uh, going to be dedicated to God. Let's go back. So that's all the way. So that's 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 these are all fantastic, fantastic questions. We'll get there. I promise we'll get there. Okay. So these these are all critical questions we have to ask about this whole period of the Exodus. Now, so there was an interpretation already. So all these things have to happen, right? Yeah. Lecture the Jews and so on. Yeah. So what when God hardened his heart, Pharaoh's heart. Yeah. What he did is actually. It gave him the possibility of actually show his free will. 
because as you said, if after the first play, through that same goal. Well, not the first, but, fifth. Or the fifth. Yeah, but when he hardened his heart, then what he does is, it, I mean, if, if you have fire on this side and then a sunny beach on that one, you will go that way, mm-hmm. right? It's not really free will, but when he hardened his heart, he let him express his true evil in a, in a, in a, in a, in a complete way. So, so he then, gave him the free will, even after all these miraculous things that uh, to any person would say, yes, go. Mm-hmm. He would harden his heart so that he can express his free will and, towards evil. And, 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 what do, and maybe the Jews will be influenced by that. Yes. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yes. Okay, uh, I like that. Very clever. Um, ten plagues. So we know in the Seder we talk about ten plagues. And they're broken down into excessive three. Quick question. Quick question. Free will? Shoot. Yes. Free will. Quick question. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> the question is quick. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the answer is, uh, and that's three more questions. So, so we know because in the Torah it says that God hardened his heart, and that's why he made those decisions. That's right. How do we know what the thief now his heart is not hardened by God, and we can't blame him? Because. Uh, because this is a, this is an exception. Means what you're saying is like this: when someone commits a double homicide, yeah, right? Or, or it just your question is: maybe maybe there were maybe they like it's the, it's the insanity plea, right? Where people, how do we know that people are in control of their actions, thus responsible for you know for the repercussions? That's right. I truly believe I truly believe in free will and uh, yeah, 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 yeah. How do we know from from here that? That happened that time, and then it doesn't happen again. Or somebody. It seems not. like this is the exception. And my mom talks about this. He says he talks about it. He says that there are a few instances. So you mentioned Hitler because Hitler. yes, I, I would say once again this is might be a controversial opinion. So if you don't have the stomach for controversial opinions, oh, wait, we're all here. Yes, okay. okay, so go get some beer. <laughs> um, I believe that it's listen as uh, all um, macro it means God is navigating us through history. You know, this is the first principle of Jewish history is that God is uh, shifting and, you know, because there's this ultimate goal that has to happen. And one of the responses is that if the Jewish people kind of lose their focus, they get a slap in the face, you know. Um, I, I don't want to get too bogged down with this problem. I know it's controversial. But just on a general thing, like if we ask the question, where was God on the Holocaust? It's a very short question, a very good question. The answer is not so simple. But the answer has to entail the fact that God was there. Why God did it, we don't know. That's a good question. But if you believe in God, then you have to believe that God was there and God was aware and God enabled it for, for whatever reason. Part of the big plan. To understand it, it's a very difficult thing. And of course, it's a very emotional thing. And people like me have a hard time dealing with this uh, item philosophically because emotionally it's so difficult to swallow, to bear, that it's very hard to divest yourself of the emotional aspect and focus solely on the philosophical. Uh, but if you know, if you were to talk about any any tragedy of such a grand scale, like the destruction of the Second Temple and the mm-hmm. vanquishing of Betar and the and the the, the all the uh, all the testimonies of the, hun- the hundreds and hundreds of towns that were slaughtered and thousands of tens of thousands of Jews that were taken kept getting like and all these things, right? Shabbat, exactly these massive massive events. Like God is there and God is manipulating it. And it's not fun at all, and it's very difficult to understand. But God is 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 uh, is doing that, and in I think in those big picture things, we talk about God uh, suspending uh, free will. 
That's what Maimonides writes, I believe. We have a Maimonides here right. in Mahamada. I believe it's in in, in the book of uh, in the in the Hilchas Tshuva, laws of repentance, chapter five. Sounds about right. That's wrong. Yeah, it's chapter five. <laughs> chapter five. Yeah. He's the Torah. Yes. Yeah, so, I, so if, but, if oh, you want to hear more about he talk, he mentioned this. Yeah, yeah. If you want to hear more it's about yeah, this, but, not, but any some petty know. criminal that's not shaping the world. Well, of this. Come on. I mean, so what? Which book are we talking about here? I don't know. What book is that? Mishnah Torah, Rambam, the first one is called Hamada, and uh, you have Hilchas Yisodeh Torah, Hilchas Tamad Torah, Hilchas Deos, Hilchas Avodah and Hilchas Tshuva. Those five sections. The laws of the pillar, the foundation of Torah, mm-hmm. the laws of, of character, the laws of idolatry, the laws of Torah study, and the laws of repentance are the first five themes that Maimonides yeah. tackles in his tremendous, tremendous book, uh, Mishnah Torah. And in the fifth chapter of the laws of repentance, he talks about free will. So there he mentions that uh, on, on rare occasions where God has a big picture item that he wants to accomplish, he may uh, suspend temporarily the free will of people to ensure that that, that indeed right, happens. The, the, the concept of big picture, right? In Judaism, right? The, the tiny thing could have an, a cosmic impact. When we say big picture, we mean national impact. Well, I mean the fact that Moses was taken from the river Nile. Right. That has a huge impact. Okay, so yes. So potentially, potentially, yes. Or Abraham. I, I, don't, I don't think we have the manual of knowing unless God tells well, us. This is, this is my question. How, how do we know? Either that this is an exception. Well, it says. God says, I'm going to do it. Right, but he doesn't, he doesn't say anything after Moses, right? Yeah, so um, I, I think by the fact that here it mentions it explicitly, that's, 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 that's a proof that this is the, the exception. This is, this is the, I would look at Maimonides, I haven't no, seen it in a while, I'll, but he mentions it, yes. You got it, there you go. What does it say? God suspending uh, the. Uh, oh, we'll, 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 we'll talk about some other time. I don't want to get. Uh, okay. Yes. 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 Shoot. Way, way off subject. I heard, Never off subject. Oh, it, it is a little. I heard. Um, Super Bowl? No, I heard. Like, uh, um, Deflating the footballs? Yeah. <laughs> Never down footballs. Um, but uh, Yona. Yeah. He, um, when God was telling him to go to the city and to you know, tell the people. To tell yeah. Uh, there might be a measures to that effect. There might be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah pharaoh, we'll do so. the research wait, wait, here. I don't remember that. It sounds sounds vaguely familiar. Oh, no, there was a relation. There was a relation between. Uh, I don't remember the details. And then the pharaoh's like, "Oh no, not the god. What's repent?" And uh, you know, um, no, it's not the same pharaoh. It's 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 a descendant of. Yeah. It, remember when 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 you read it. When you, read a, when, when you read a Midrash, you have to know... Yeah, yeah because right um, when Pharaoh and the Egyptians are chasing him into the sea, and so Pharaoh doesn't die. He doesn't die, that's right. He's actually ejected and he becomes... Right, so I, so I think oh, that... Yeah. that uh, so he's the same one. So yeah, but, but remember, this is oh, hundreds of years later. It was like a descendant. It's, yeah. ha- it's hundreds of years later, so I don't know if it can be... It's very... 
hard to imagine. I don't know. I, I, my answer, the answer to the question is I don't know. But you know okay. what? I don't, I don't think he leaves. I would totally question. Yeah, but yeah. I, I no, think, it's your question. I don't think he leaves for hundreds of years because. Pharaoh? Right, because, you know, the, the bigger the animal, the longer it lives, like an elephant compared to a man. And Pharaoh was like this, right? Okay, 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 okay. okay. So this is important here. Right? And Moses was 17 feet. Okay. <laughs> we have to have a lesson here on how to learn Agatha. <laughs> Let's suspend. Okay, the, the, the Midrash says, the Agatic Midrash says that Moshe was 10 amos tall. An amma is, yeah, the length from the elbow, so it's roughly 62 centimeters. So that would mean Moshe would be around 20 feet tall. Does that mean that Moshe was 20 feet tall? I highly doubt it. Right. And when it says that Pharaoh was one amma tall, it means he was yay high. I additionally <laughs> doubt it. Um, what it probably means is, we have to look at the commentaries, see what yeah, they say exactly. Exactly. It says that um, uh, Adam was spanned from one end of the world to the other end of the world. So he was cursed. What does, what does that mean? Like, yeah, what does that, what does that even mean? <laughs> These things cannot be taken literally. In fact, back to the aforementioned Maimonides, he goes on a diatribe against people that learn the Agatha, the sections of the Torah that are like the, uh, the ethical or the philosophical sections, and learns them only literally. Mm-hmm. Because if you do that, you'll say, oh, the Talmud says, the Agatha Talmud says that there's, in, in Baba Basra in 73, uh, it says that there's, uh, in the water, in the ocean, there are waves that are 400 parsos tall. How much is a parsa? Three mil. A mil is like a mile. I don't know if it's a, a mile or it's a Roman mile. Either way, we're talking about 1,200 mile um, waves. And the tip of the wave is fire. That is clearly not meant to be understood literally. And in fact, you have the commentary of the Volner growing there explaining exactly in detail what it, well, what it means, you know? <sighs> yes. Why not? That's not... Well, okay, but the, the, but but not to be said. Then there are those people that say, oh, "You read the Bible literally; the whole thing is an allegory." You know, there's the, the, the like, you know I that's. So okay, 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 okay. The way the, the 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 way to the way to understand the Torah is to have the key. Right, don't don't cut don't hurt a kid in the calf in his mother's milk. It says it three times in the Torah. Um, if you want to understand the Torah, you have to look at the oral Torah because the Torah itself is a sealed book. It doesn't explain what it means. It has words of another definition of like totafot. What is a totafot? If you just got, if you just handed the book, the good book, the Bible, you wouldn't know what to do. You know, that doesn't give descriptions of how to do things, and it itself testifies that there is an accompanying. Uh, work when it says, uh, in, huh? That's in one example, and another example, uh, Simba's name Yeshua, place him in, yeah, how I show you in Deuteronomy chapter twelve, verse twenty-one. Right, many, many examples where it clearly indicates that there's a companion, companion book. Um, so yes, so when it says don't, don't, uh, if you were to try to understand the Torah and by reading it, you wouldn't, you wouldn't get, you wouldn't get very far. Like it gives you mitzvahs, like we like we said, fill or observe the Shabbos. Don't do work on Shabbos. It doesn't know where to say what what is constitutes work, what does not constitute work. Um, again and again, we see examples of of uh, of things that are obviously not 
that are ambiguous, not clear in the Torah, in the written Torah, and they have to be understood. It's like, it's like imagine trying to read a book in a foreign language. You know, I don't know, maybe you guys speak a little French or... Uh, well, the order... Yeah, that's written by, like, rabbis. No, 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 no. Oh, okay. Settle down. It was given to Moses. No, the, 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 the way to describe it... Okay. The oral Torah, the oral Torah is the explanation, understanding, uh, complete understanding of the written Torah, plus it includes uh, all customs that were oral for hundreds of years, like Jewish customs, how to fulfill the mitzvahs, etc. Now, what's important is, it's a nice little cool little tidbit, that if you were to actually have the written Torah it itself, if you know how to deduce it, you should come to all the oral Torah. So it has it all in there, but it's not it's not surface level. So oral Torah is is I, I call it like the key. You know, it's like if you have a a, a document that is uh, encrypted. So you're trying to read the document. What it's telling you, you don't know. And there's the key, and the key unlocks the encryption and it makes sense of what you're reading. So. That's what the oral Torah is to the written Torah. The oral Torah is the key to understand the encrypted work, which is the written Torah. And what's called oral, even though it was written down, because it was only written down by necessity, like uh, in the second century of this common era, under Roman persecution, when the rabbis were not able to convene and they were threatened with uh, pain of death if they studied Torah publicly or if they gave them circumcision, etc., etc. Therefore, they felt that it was a need to write it down or else Torah would be forgotten. Uh, but uh, for years it was transmitted orally, rabbi to student, parent to child. You know, like uh, weird tzitzis on the corner of your of your of your clothing. It doesn't say what the tzitzis looks like or what it's made out of or how. You know, it doesn't give those instructions in the actual book because it's encrypted. Got to got to get the key to understand the encryption. So if the Torah is the password, what's the username? What's the username? <laughs> <laughs> what's the username? <laughs> Uh, it's like uh, I was in uh, I was in Temple Beth Torah in Umble, and I uh, I had my iPad and I had my notes in it, but I didn't have I didn't have I needed the Wi-Fi password. So I was asking, "What's the Wi-Fi password?" So somebody's Moses six thirteen. That's the username. <laughs> Moses six thirteen. Awesome. Yeah, that's, that's the username. So. <laughs> there you go. Okay, so um, so this process, everything we're reading about from the uh, uh, original subjugation and enslavement in Egypt, to the plagues, to the ultimate exile, uh, I'm sorry, exodus, yeah, I get mixed up, to the ultimate exodus, all that is part of formulating this free nation. So, as an example, many of the commentaries on the Torah, they talk about the significance of what exactly, which element of faith are we hammering home by each one of the various plagues. For example, uh, if you notice the first three are 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 below the below the ground. You know, you have the you know the first two come out of the water, the Nile, and the third, the lice comes out of the out of the earth. And the next three are are surface, are on the ground. You have the animals, animals dying, the the swarm of the animals, and the and the, and the boils on, on on the people's skin. And then you have the last three are from the sky. You know, the locust comes and they cover up. You know, the the hail from the sky. And the locust comes and it covered the because you ever seen locusts? They fly, they they go, they go in the air. And lastly, darkness. They, they, the sun is right. This are three levels of of teaching the Jews and 
uh, you know, by proxy uh, with, with teaching the Egyptians, that God is control of everything. What's down below, what's up above, and what's all around us. That's one of the one of the interpretations given. Uh, other interpretations are uh, God has control of of uh, God's a creator, God's a sustainer, God's a supervisor. You know, the, you know, every one of the commentaries explain exactly what nuance in faith the Jewish people and the Egyptians learned from these plagues. That's why the plagues are not just a means to an end. Rather, they are an end to itself to teach the Jews about faith, to formulate their collective uh, uh, capacity for spirituality in recognition of, of God being in total dominion. Additionally, additionally, we see many times the Torah goes out of its way to specify that the plagues will smite the Egyptians but will spare the Jews. You know? So the Egyptian has a cup of water and it's blood. And the Jew takes the same cup of water and he drinks it and it's water. And the Egyptian says, oh, I'll take that cup, it's water. Oh, no, it turns into blood. And they take two straws. I just have this great imagery. They I take two straws. Read, yes, go ahead. I read something that said if they paid Jews for the Right, water, so they had to pay. If they were to pay, they would stay, it would stay water or if they would dig new wells. That's right. Um, but you have two... Yeah, I read that, I think, this week. That they dug new wells and it... They dug new wells, and then they had water. But any existing water reservoirs were contaminated with blood for seven days. Uh, you have two, you know, two people drinking from the same cup, and for the Jew, it's water, and for the and for the Gentile, it's, or for the Egyptian, it's the Egyptian slave master, taskmaster. It's 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 blood. And then the frogs come, and they infest. Who do they infest? The Egyptians. Who do they spare? The Jews. You know, and you have the light. Well, the Torah itself says, the Torah itself says, and the Jewish people had light wherever they went. Yeah. How, it went how it worked, I don't know. Uh, it seems like this, this was a, a, like a palpable darkness. You know, it wasn't just absence of light. It was something that just, they froze in place. They wouldn't have to move. The Torah said, read the book. You know, this is not even, you don't have to go to the Midrash or the Oral Torah like that. Just read it, what it says. It says that this was like this uh, thick yeah, darkness that thick enveloped darkness. them. It wasn't just an absence of light. It was a new creation that... Uh, you know, and you have all the examples: the animals, um, the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not the Jews. And the hail hit the Egyptians down. So you have like a, you know, sometimes you see like where there's a tornado, and it knocks down all the houses, the block size for one. You see those pictures, like those aerial pictures. That's what it was like. You know, you have the hailstorm coming, and there's one Jewish house in the block. You know, like I remember going to your house. Like every house is bedecked with the Christmas lights on your block. You know? And then we have a menorah. That's a, Boom, everyone, all the Egyptian neighbors, they all get the, their houses are, are, are you know destroyed by, by hail, this fiery hail. And the Jewish house are all spared, you know? So that uh, That's why we call them Susan, right? Yeah, we do the Susan. So um, the Egyptian firstborns die, all these examples, and once again teach the Jews an element of faith. God is not only in control of everything, God's active, God's involved, God's supervising on an individual level. And that's a great lesson in faith. So, so that's the first. That's the first point. Now, we have at the end of the parsha, we have an instruction to have tefillin and to have mezuzahs. Uh, now, contained within the, uh, it was, this is a great story. I had a, we had a, we had a, um, we had someone. You know, come do construction in our house. So I have a, I have a playroom in my house, 
where there's like a like a, a door that uh, opens both ways. I don't think it's called like a, I think it's called like a saloon door, swing door, whatever. So the problem is that there's no place to put a mezuzah in it because it's flush basically with the you know because it you know most doors open one way, so you put it on the other side. There's no doorpost. So I told a guy I had a construction guy, and I said, "Why don't you cut out the outline inside the actual door and cut out the outline of the of the mezuzah?" And and put you know and it's like put the mezuzah in and we'll put it within the door so it won't obstruct the door from swinging open and close. Fine. So he took the he took the like mezuzah case, he traced the outline, and he drilled a hole and whatever. And I, I wasn't there when he did it. And I get there and I see that he actually took the mezuzah case and put it in like an empty mezuzah case. There's no mezuzah inside of it. It's just a case, you know. Because the, the, mezuzah has a case, but it's a scroll inside of it. But the name is like you know you know. So he fixes it. He fixed it himself, you know. He knew, he knew, he knew, so, but he, he knew the bracha. <laughs> so I took it out. I put the scroll in. I said the bracha, and I put it in again, you know. But the mezuzahs, they have scrolls. Within the scrolls, it talks about the Exodus. Tefillin, in the boxes that we're in the, our head and our arms, right, the, the, the tefillin is two, two minutes of tefillin. One a tefillin on the head, and one a tefillin on the arm. The tefillin on the arm has one compartment. The tefillin on the head has four compartments. The tefillin on the arm has one scroll. The tefillin on the head has four scrolls. And on these four scrolls contain four Torah portions. Right? And talk about the Exodus. And on that single scroll inside the single compartment within the tefillin, it says one uh, is one parchment, but it's for four, those same four Torah portions on one, on one scroll. And they'll talk about the Exodus. Hold that thought for a second. Additionally, we have Shabbat. And we say Shabbat every time we say it by the Kiddush. Zecher liitziat Mitzrayim. And these words are words that we repeat again and again. There are many, many, many mitzvahs, commandments that we have as a remembrance for the Exodus. For example, we celebrate the holiday of Passover. Why? Zecher liitziat Mitzrayim. To a remembrance of the Exodus from Egypt. We celebrate the holiday of Shavuot, Zecher, we celebrate the holiday of Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, we say it, Sukkot, we say it, Shemini Yatzer, Simchat Torah, Zecher, Litzet Mitzrayim. Many, many mitzvahs, like the Tefillin, Mezuzah, are a remembrance for, for the Exodus from Egypt. You know? And it seems like the Torah has this obsession with this episode of the Exodus. In fact, the Torah wants that every time we walk into our house, we see a scroll. What are we supposed to do when we see the scroll? Remember the Exodus. Every morning we wake up and we're filling. What are we supposed to do? Remember the Exodus. In the morning we say the Shema to remember the Exodus. In the evening we say the Shema to remember the Exodus. Every Shabbat, once a week, remember the Exodus. Periodically we have four or five holidays remembering the Exodus. Why is this story, this episode that happened 3300 years ago, why is it so simple? Why is it so core? Why is it so pivotal and essential to our nation that we have to constantly be reminding ourselves of this. Well, Shema is that plus. Well, Shema is about... No, uh, the last one. No, it's, it's, it's not the... Well, the, the, the Shema is three sections, right? Vahavta, Vahayim Shemoa, and Vayomer. Right? Dabel Israel, right? Vasum Titsis, right? Remember? 
מה זה ריזנדר ויסנדר שלו? אני אשאר צייסי, הוצאתי אתכם מארץ מצרים. So we say that again and again. So this is something which is so important. We have to remember it twice a day. Every time we enter and enter our house one, uh, twice in the morning with once the film, sure. once at night, every Shabbat, every week. It's so central. Why is it so important? Why is it so, so crucial? Well, it's, uh, I'm thinking now. It's a good question, uh, right? Yeah. It, it, it because with... we have to go to that in order I set you guys up for this come on <laughs> well this is the redemption right this is the reform the nation but also we have experiences that uh, emblazon within our collective minds the idea of faith every time every morning we're supposed to have this touch point to With this one episode of faith it means uh, my grandfather used to always say that um, he used to uh, he used to say from his teacher that the mitzvahs and the Torah they're a thermos what does a thermos do it preserves the heat there was this uh, epiphany of faith and relationship with God that happened with the exodus and the Mount Sinai experience that whole the whole the whole story. And that, that relationship, that, 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 that heat, so to speak, is maintained throughout the course of history with the mitzvahs. The mitzvah is like the thermos that's supposed to maintain that heat. Thus, every day when we go and we remember the Exodus, we have this one touch point with, that, with, with the original Exodus and the tremendous faith that the Jewish people were imbued with at that time. The... There's a great um, Ramban, Nachmanis, and it's, it's so, um, we, I don't know how many copies of it we, had over, we have over here, but my grandfather used to, some grandfather was a great rabbi and lived in Israel. Google Rabbi Wolby. So my, if you Google Rabbi Wolby, W-O-L-B-E, so my website, RabbiWolby.com, is the second result on, on, on Google, because the first result is my grandfather's Wikipedia page. So Gav was a very, very instrumental, um, very um, influential rabbi who lived in Israel. He was born in Germany in 1914 and ultimately made it to Israel after the war and uh, was a tremendous character uh, in, in the Torah and Yeshiva world in Israel. So he, when he would talk about this Ramban, this Nachmanis, this uh, idea that he says at the end of this week's Parsha, he would say, it's so important That everyone needs to learn it by heart so they tell the students everyone to know it needs to know it by heart because there's so there's so much gold in uh, in this uh, in this Ramban. So I want I want to, I want to go through it and I'll, I'll, I'll I won't read it in Hebrew I'll just read it I'll do the closed captioning whatever I mean it's straight up in English he says he, he starts to little listen to this preamble Nachmanides a 13th century rabbi um, very very uh You heard Nachmanides, his name is Nachmanides, Maimonides, it sounds so similar, different people. <laughs> Maimonides is 11th century, this is, we're talking about uh, 12th or 13th century, um, but also very influential. And he wrote this commentary in the Torah, more precisely, it's a super commentary. Do you know what a super commentary is? Commentary. 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 That's right. It's a commentary on Rashi. Rashi is the paramount commentator. We did that joke last time. Uh, but he, this is a commentary on Rashi. So here at the end, this is the most famous 
the most famous Ramban on the entire Torah is this one. And this is Parsha. I think if you Google, I'm sure if you Google gives you those auto-complete. Like Ramban in, and then I would say like probably Bo. I'm willing to bet. You want to check that out on, on the Google? So what did he mention earlier with the first five and the last five? Uh, the first five. No, no, that's a different Ramban. Okay, I'm going to read to you. Ready? Let's go. Let's go. And now I will tell you a great principle in many mitzvahs. He gives an introduction. He says, from the days of Enosh, there were people that had, you know, that had deviations in faith. Some people, you know, rejected the idea of God entirely. They, they you know, that he's referencing the Greek uh, philosophy where they believed on an eternal world. They didn't have a beginning. In fact, that was the uh, per- pervasive belief until this most recent century. You know, the Jewish people have a Torah. The first word of the Torah is duration, the beginning. It was the beginning. It's the first thing that we, it's the very first word in the Torah. It's the very first. And many, many scientists up to the 1960s, uh, they rejected that as, as being science fiction or as being fictional. Why? Because the world had no beginning, because the world was around forever. It was eternal. And then they discovered the, uh, the echoes of the Big Bang. Yeah. Um, they discovered uh, the, uh, that the world was expanding, you know, without a doubt. Thus, if it was expanding, it's dynamic. And if it's dynamic, it's not static. And if it's not static, it means it had a beginning. So science comes around to, uh, to, to, um, to agreement with the Torah, with the very first word in the Torah, uh, about 3,300 years after the Torah already said, yeah, we know. So there was a beginning. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, so, so but he's, he, maybe he's writing from a different, means his perspective, is, it's, it's a little bit dated because he's dealing with a society where there are a lot of people, probably the majority of people at that time, believe that the world had no beginning. It was never a beginning. So he says that since the days of Enosh, uh, since the days of, of well, is that relevant? It says, it says the most famous Ramban the end of There we go. Thank you. The Google. Uh, <laughs> yes, thank you. So he says that. So since the days of Enosh, uh, people had these. You know, uh, um, they went uh, astray in their thoughts on faith. Some people said that the world was around forever. Uh, there are other ones that say that God doesn't know what's actually happening. You know, God uh, kind of doesn't know what's, what we're thinking. You know, God doesn't have that knowledge. Uh, and there are those that say that he does have knowledge, but doesn't have supervision, doesn't, doesn't take a stand, so to speak. And, and so he gives, he gives basically three, uh, three, three kinds of, uh, of atheists, basically. You have the ones that don't believe that God created the world. You have those that don't believe God that God is aware of what happened, and those that don't believe that God uh, is uh, is supervising. And uh, then he's going to introduce a fourth one. Now listen to this. And when God decides that He wants a group of people or an individual, and He does a miracle that changes the laws of nature, then it becomes clear to everyone that these various forms of atheism are untrue. Because you see, God exists because the rules of nature are suddenly suspended. You see, God knows what's happening. He's aware of what's happening. And he he, he supervises on an individual level. So a miracle shatters atheism. Once you see a miracle, there's there's, there's no way to deny a supreme intelligent being who has control. There's no way, it's not possible anymore to deny it. And that proves that, that God uh, exists, God 
he either here's where he adds the the fourth element. God um, uh, sustains, so God's constantly involved. It's not like God says, "Oh, you know, I created the world and now I'm off to bigger, and better things." God knows, and God and God is supervises. So what he's telling us, he says, the significance of these miracles. What's the significance of the miracles? What did they accomplish? They taught the Jews about God. Because God wanted them, God chose them, and thus God changed the, the most common will of God, which is nature, he changed it for them because God wanted them. You know, he had this question, someone says, hey, here's pork, here's a Jew. If God exists, after I consume the pork, let him smite me with the bolt of lightning. And they grandiosely consume it and see? That doesn't exist. You know, that's, that's something that people use as a proof. The point is that that's not the way God works. God only is going to change the rules of nature if he decides that he wants a, a group of people or an individual and wants to make it absolutely abundantly and inescapably clear that he exists. Thus, it happened once at the Exodus. And we reference that because that is a time where the belief in God was incontrovertible. There's no way when you see the ten plagues, and then you see the splitting of the sea, and then you see the Mount Sinai experience, and then you see the 40 years of the desert where the Jews are leaving on a supernatural level, there's no way to question the existence of God. It's not possible. Because God wanted us, and God wanted to hammer home the idea of faith. Now, for us to have faith, for us to, to boost and buttress our faith, what do we do? We reference it back. We see a mezuzah, and the mezuzah is going to give us a touch point with that one time where the faith was abundant. And we could connect, we could tap into that experience. We remember the Exodus so often because that, these are little signposts for us reminding us of our faith. Because we have documentation, we have evidence, we have accounting of those, those experiences. We have millions of people experiencing it. We have the book detailing it, and the book and the author itself writing his name in it, and we have him delivering it to the very people who experienced those miracles. Thus, uh, we'll go back, go back to our bond. Thus, thus, the centrality of these partiers and these experiences, because our faith today that we have, what's it from? Why do we believe all that we believe in? Because there was once a point in time where these miracles removed any shadow of the doubt. And from then, we constantly have reminded ourselves, we have built a framework to relive these experiences throughout the course of our day, throughout the course of our year, throughout the course of our lives. We are more stubborn than that. I mean, they saw these miracles in Mitzrayim, and soon after, they... they, they I thought we'll still get to that. We'll still <laughs> get to that. But that's a very good question. That, 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 that's the obvious follow-up question. Yeah, I have to ask this. Why does... I'm listening. I'm just. I'm just reading. Yeah. So why God does things is a very hard question because we don't necessarily know unless God tells us. Um, here we know that God told us. God already had already made this decision earlier. That God chose Abraham and Abraham's descendants, the Jewish people, as being this nation. That's why God uh, had these revelations of, of miracles. You know, someone could say, "Hey." You know, God had this revelation. Why is he, you know, why is he revealed? So like, like the, you know, the episode of the brazen, the brazen consumer of the pork and says, let God smite me. Um, 
you know, I I heard of very, you know a clever idea uh, of this. Um, was a, there's a story, but then there's also uh, the uh, the lesson. The story was that there was this uh, this rabbi who was traveling, and he stopped off in a hotel. And the hotel owner was a Jewish guy. He says, "Listen, I don't believe anymore. You know, why not?" Some guy convinced me, hey, you know, why God doesn't do any more miracles anymore? Where are the miracles if God exists? You know, let him split, let him split the bayou, and you know, let him, you know, what, <laughs> you know, why, what, why are there no more miracles? And he said, in, in the course of the conversation, the the, propi- the hotel proprietor's daughter came, and she came to show her, her father that she finally finished her course in in singing or in playing music. I heard different variants of the story. Either in singing or in playing music, and she has a diploma. And so the rabbi tells her, "Oh, no, you know how to sing, or you know how to play." That's the two variants of the story. Let's go with the playing piano, right? So he says, "Oh, let's hear, let's hear you play." And she's a little shy, whatever. He says, "You don't know how to play." He says, "What do you mean? She has this, she has a certificate, you know." Once, and he says, Look, "Don't your ears hear what your mouth is saying?" Once someone has the certificate, you don't need to question their competency anymore. You're like, wait, well, you know. But the point is, they uh, when I have when I have a certificate, my, no, my point, I, I know it sounded a little bad. Engineers all the time. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um. So yeah, but <laughs> but once. Yeah. You, <laughs> um. But Ben, Ben, once I know where you're getting. No, but I'll, I'll reformulate it. Once you see the degree, you can't doubt that they got the degree. That's my point. Like how they obtain the degree is questionable. That's right. That, that that that's true. That's true. But 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 like the point is that you know if you go to a doctor, you know it's nice to see that they have a diploma, right? But if you know, <laughs> it's that's really nice if it's hanging right. on the wall. You know, it kind of gives you a little more you know confidence. Uh, but you don't ask them to see the diploma every time. Right. You don't, right? You don't. Once it's been proven once. That's true. That's very powerful. When you go to a doctor and you say, yeah, you, you right? well, yeah, but if you if you, if you don't look for it, wait, wait, but he, because once competency is established, it's assumed to continue. So, like same thing. God, God did it for the Jewish people, and He did it in such a variety of ways with the ten plagues, with the Exodus. God being in total control. Uh, we see, saw it again and again. We saw miraculous. Uh, um, uh, way of life for 40 years, and we know the names of those people. We have the documentation of the book, and we have that book delivered to those very people, not delivered to some future nation, not someone convincing people that, you know, that, oh, I got this book from a thousand years ago and reintroduced it. There's no reintroduction. Those people that ate the manna and drank the water from the rock, those are the people that got the book, and that those are the same people that began practicing the 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 difficult and detailed laws of the Torah, as a result of their belief in this book being a true document. Thus, we have we have uh, we have uh, clear and copious evidence uh, that uh, that the that these miracles actually happened. There's no way for it to not be true, uh, and and that's what we reference every day. You know, so let's let's get back to here. Um, he says a very nice uh, conclusion. I'm stepping a little bit to make it. Uh, I'm, I'm doing the abridged version. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes on and on. Listen to the details of the tefillin. 
And therefore, the Torah says you should know. It says it many times. You should, and in order that you should know that I am that I am the God, you know, in the midst of the land, to show you that God is in control in the specifics and the details and supervising, and doesn't let just you know it, nature take its course. And it says it again. You should know that I am God in the world to know that God renews re- renews it, and he's 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 he, he's he's capable, and he's uh, and he's the master of, of of all, and there's nothing that stops him, nothing inhibits inhibits him. Oh, and because this is one I got to, and because that the Almighty does not do a sign or a miracle in every generation in the eyes of every wicked person or every heathen, therefore God commands us that we should always make a remembrance and a sign to that that our eyes witnessed, and we should uh, transmit this uh, to our children and our children to their children and to their children to their children until the final until the final until the final generation. And the Torah was very stringent with this. The Torah says, if someone eats chametz, unleavened bread on Passover, they're out of the Jewish people. Like, you're eating bread, you know. Torah was so stringent about it because this refraining from, from consumption of leavened bread, that is linking us to faith. It's core to our religion. Thus, it's justified where, where the Torah to tell us if someone transgresses that, they're divesting, they're, they're leaving the nation themselves because they're leaving this, the, the, this, uh, this um, uh, realization or understanding or a feeling that we've had with this exodus of, 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 of the belief and the faith in God. And that's why we have so many mitzvahs that are remembered uh, for, uh, for, for Egypt. It says that all our prayers is to have every, all the mitzvahs are 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 there to bolster our faith. Uh, but the centrality of of Egypt and the exodus from Egypt is because that was the time where the faith was clear to all. So. I think to to move a step forward in our in our discussion. By the way, we we have a hard hard hard. We have a hard uh, time to leave. Like uh, we can still go on midnight. Midnight. Okay, good. So, but well, midnight needs actually. <laughs> so midnight up here is in this uh, this Parsha too. Well, that's right. Well, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yes, so that's when that's that's the time when the firstborn died. Is a clever question. When's midnight? You know, it's either before midnight or after midnight. When did God actually smite them? There's no time to call midnight. Huh? Well, no. No, 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 no. When Moses tells Pharaoh that he's going he's to say Kachatzi around. But when it actually happened, it says Bachatzi So, but when's midnight? When's there ever a time it's midnight? It's either before midnight or after midnight. Yeah. That's right. But remember, but there's no, but there's no point. But remember, there's no point that's not six or seven. Is that right? Yes. There's no six and a half. Yes. So, so it's either before midnight or after midnight. So God knows exactly when that is. So, but when did when did they die? This is a clever question. It's 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 just a, it's just a it's it's just a um it's a riddle. Like when the guy killed him, says at midnight. At midnight, we're up here with like around. Yeah, midnight, you know? the bells were going off. Dong, 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 dong. Then you the baby dead. That's it. Who cares? What? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but but when do they die? Like at what point in time? They died. It's, 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 it's
it's clanging. Yes. Yeah, yeah, the little bells are going off. It's striking. In the, it, it was six. The clock then. There was no Christian. It hit six. Yeah. There it, was no... it hit six gongs. No. They're dead. Six gone. more gongs. They wake up. They see the dead. Oh, it's, it's yeah, good, it's good, it's good. You're saying a good point, but the truth is, I, I got befuddled by this question as well, but the true answer is, is that the people were alive till that cutoff point, and then they ceased living after the cutoff point. So there's no time of midnight that the death has to happen. It doesn't take five seconds for death. You're either alive or you're dead. It's either before midnight or after midnight. That's the simple answer. <laughs> right? Yeah. Before midnight, they were alive, and then they're dead. Huh? There's certain times for each thing. So you're saying midnight is not the time? No, so midnight is deadline. You don't have to do something at midnight, that's the deadline or the beginning. Like, chatzot, midnight is the deadline for consuming of the afatoman on the Seder, right? So if you do it before that, there's no actual time called midnight. It's, not, it's, it's, it's a deadline. It's, but it's either before cannot, or after. You're going to eat. There's no the time matcha, that's not before or it's after. A, it's a no time. It's a singularity, right? Think of it as a But you can eat it. Yeah. After the No, how do you do it? I mean, it's zero times. The delta T is zero, right? It's a differential. It's a differential. It's a singularity. Right, it's a singularity. But so another... It's just a silly question. No, no, no. But there's... And it's a simple answer, but it's it's clever. Right? I, but, uh, I think it was a midrash that says that, that at that time God split time. So there was a before then. He stole all these clock. obscure mi- mi- midrashes. <laughs> where, where do you read them? Like, <laughs> Pharaoh is, is Jonah, and so he split. So, so Pharaoh is the, is the so there the, he stopped the clock, right? And that's the type of guy that's going out to Google and going to the fourth page. Yeah, the fourth page, not the first page. That's good. <laughs> Got suspended time. Nice. Yeah. Um, okay, so what's go ahead. Out of this, um, part of the law of the film that it's, it's, it has to be tied with. Um, it's a string. It's, 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 a, it's a string. Um, it's actually three strings. It's uh, it's actually they it use uh, like some veins from animals. So they use to to close it because it's a box that has an opening. You know that you can open it. Obviously, how do you get the stuff in there? So it's tied. It's bound. There's lots of laws about it. Let's, uh, no, you're supposed to have the strings. You know, there's many, 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 many details in the laws. I don't know the exact details of the law. Good question. Yeah, it's very short. It's, um, yeah, I believe there's three streams. It's like that. Anyhow, so, um, so yes, that's okay. I know, we were. So I think this, this adds another, this is the second element of what I wanted to talk about. So the first thing I wanted to make uh, abundantly clear was that these plagues were ends unto themselves. Pharaoh would have let them go after the fifth plague. The Almighty could have con- concocted a plague that uh, that that you know, or could have just took people out, plucked them out. You know, God is not limited uh, to to the laws of nature. So just like He makes the water split, He can make the Jews just suddenly apparate to Israel. Like it's not it's not a problem. Uh, but God wanted it to be to be like that. And why? Which is the point number two is because that is uh, is 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 lessons in faith. All the uh, the miracles. 
and the plagues on their own right taught the Jews about, about faith. And we relive that, that's the third part, with, uh, with all our mitzvahs. Now, back to Diego's question. How is it possible that a mere 39 days after the Jewish people experienced the most momentous experience in the history of mankind at Mount Sinai, you have a group of people, albeit a very small group, a group nonetheless who experienced that and yet were able to declare, this is your God, O Israel, that I've taken you out of the land of Egypt on a very fancy golden calf. Question uh, number one. Question number two. Uh, a few months later, the Jewish people devolved once again with the slander on, e- on Egypt, uh, on, on Israel, and the story of the spies. How is it possible that people can experience these tremendous uh, inspiration and not be moved by it? I want. Huh? <laughs> well, okay, but if we're going to invoke a Medrash, it, the Medrash says that those people were all in the Erevav. Right? The Erevav are the. Well, yeah, I said, I said, but if you're going to invoke, invoke it, oh. that's why I said people, because... Are we doing obscure Midrash? No, this is not obscure. This is Rashi, Rashi. <laughs> this is Midrashes that are brought Rashi down by Rashi. No, Rashi always goes for the most simple. Yeah. Simple. yeah. Now, but let's, let's, try to, let's try to even bring this to a... a uh, um, you see Pharaoh. Pharaoh, he sees Moses come, and Moses does a, does a, you know, a, a sign. He takes the staff or Aaron takes a staff and throw on the ground, and it turns into a serpent. Is, is Pharaoh moved by that? No. no. Not at all. The Egyptians do the same thing. He says, yeah, no big deal. Moses comes and turns the water into blood. Is yeah, Pharaoh moved by that? No. Pharaoh impressed? No. Yeah, sources do the same thing. I can do that. Right? <laughs> the, the frogs. Yes, I can't do it. <laughs> the, the frogs, as Pharaoh impressed, is not a source do the same thing. Lice? They're too small, Rashi's are too small, very good. And and what did the sorcerers say? Expelling him is the finger of God. This is something that is obviously divine. Is Pharaoh moved? No, he isn't. Let's fast forward. Again and again, we see Pharaoh just he's he's the first time he hardened his heart. Let's go all the way to the last of the ten plagues, and that is the death of the firstborn. firstborn. There's a very intriguing Rashi. One word Rashi. Only one word. And I'll read the reverse. I'll give you this where it is exactly. It is in chapter. Now Pharaoh was the firstborn, right? That's right. And he didn't die. He didn't die. That's the exception, right? And, and, and what, what was the reason behind that? What was the... Um, the reason is is that he should kind of uh, testify to that. You know that that Pharaoh will forever, uh, and the Jewish people, uh, like I said by prophecy. Will for, will forever see Pharaoh, and he will not be able to escape the fact that he was totally humbled and he was totally brought to his knees, and his nation was vanquished by 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 God. Yeah, remember Rashi brings two interpretations when it says Adechad. This is Nefesh Parsha. Lo Sharmem Adechad. There wasn't even one left. The Rashi brings one interpretation that that was there was no one left. Another interpretation that there was indeed one left, and that was Pharaoh. So it's not so clear that he actually survived the whole thing. But if he did, it was because that was going to be a verification or a, 
uh, a witness to, to stand to be a witness that to to these episodes. Chapter twelve, verse. I'm sorry. Chapter twelve, verse thirty. Yes, correct. So, verse twenty nine. And it was in the middle of the night, and the Almighty smote uh, every firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his chair on his throne, until the firstborn of the uh, of the of the um, of the Shvi uh, uh, the, the captive who was in the, who was in prison, and all all the firstborn of the animals. And Pharaoh woke up in the night, him and all his people. And there was a great cry, great scream, because there's not a single house that doesn't have a dead person. So it says that Pharaoh woke up. So Rashi gives us one word. What does Rashi say? Who knows what Rashi says? Ben, what does Rashi say? Uh, chapter 12, verse 30. Vayakam Paro. And Pharaoh woke up. What, is, what does it say? Me mitato from his bed. Why is Rashi telling us where Pharaoh was or where he came from his bed? Was it well he came from his couch? Did he come from his like, why is it so important? Rashi's only adding to the story or to the lessons. Why does Rashi feel it necessary to tell us that when it says Pharaoh got up, he got up not from his chair, not from his recliner, not from his sauna, not from his Hammock from his bed. He wasn't worried. Booyah. Pharaoh had experienced miracle miracle that was in uh, that was it was inescapably clear that it was from God. Even his sorcerers, the very skilled and talented sorcerers and necromancers that were working for him, said, "We can't do this. This is beyond. This is the hand of God." Moses tells him that at midnight, all the firstborn are going to die. Was Pharaoh moved by it? No, and in fact, Rashi tells us he had the presence of mind. He had the calmness to look as if he's going to sleep. Imagine you knew it's like the 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 the, the, the ticking bomb that to midnight, the countdown to midnight. Moses said, and Moses has been proven many times right before. It's, it's six hours left to midnight. Everyone's gonna all the firstborn. There'll be thousands upon thousands of dead people in Egypt. Did Pharaoh was Pharaoh moved at all? Pharaoh says, "Bedtime gets in the pajamas, goes to sleep." What's remarkable about the Jewish people or some segments of the Jewish people after the Exodus, that even though they saw all these miracles, it didn't, it didn't impact them. It didn't impact them. And even Pharaoh, in the throes of these plates, and he was told, he was forewarned, everyone's going to die. He had, to, he had to be calm and the coolness to go to sleep. So the question is like this. How is it possible to have something so clear, so evident, and so inexcusable or so inescapable, yet to have it not impact you. On the other hand, isn't that the same thing that Jews did when they were receiving the Torah? Like, they overslept. Yeah, okay, but there's an, there's, there's an interpretation with that, you know. <laughs> because what actually happened. <laughs> Because yeah, they did sleep. You know, the reason why on, on the holiday of Shavuos, we stay up the whole night. We started the whole night. Why? To atone for the Jews who slept in. Jews, so the Jews, the Midrash says, the Jews slept in uh, and got to wake him up, so to speak. So, so, let me finish. Let me finish. Listen to this. <laughs> Moses tells him, Moses tells him three days before the Mount Sinai revelation, 
that in right separate clean your clothing right uh, don't approach a woman because in three days you're going to get the Torah at Mount Sinai. And then the Talmud says if someone makes a vow to not sleep for three days, and you remember this one, Nadarim? Someone makes a vow not to sleep for three days, so there's the very complex laws with dealing with vows and pledges that people make and how they're, they're obligated to do it. And if someone makes a vow, like a Torah vow, not just a regular vow, I'm promising I'm going to kill you, not that. A Torah vow, and they do not fulfill the vow, they're punished. Well, so Thomas says if someone someone pledges to not sleep for three days, then they're punished already before beforehand because it's not possible to not sleep for three days. That's what it says. Um, so what happened was the Jewish people were told in three days they're going to get the Torah. They were so excited with anticipation they couldn't fall asleep. But after three days, you can't stay up for more than three days until they fall asleep. And that's why they have to be woken up. That's the answer. So, so... How is it possible that we see such such diametrically opposite responses to the same information? You have this tremendous inspiration, and this inspiration is moving for anyone. Even Pharaoh was moved, you would assume, to some degree, where you see, like, everyone says this is God, it's clear. The Jewish people are also moved. On the one hand, the Jewish people were to- are told, we have to take this and translate it into faith. And this is going to be the building bots of faith for our nation for eternity. Right? We're going to live off these experiences forever, live in a spiritual sense. Yet Pharaoh, at that time, not even thousands of years later, at that time, was able to reject it. And some Jews, or some people that were uh, a part of the Jewish people, it's only 3,000, so it's a very small percentage, right? One out of every 20 people. Uh, one out of every, no, less than, yeah, yeah, 20 people. So, no, more than that, sorry. 200, 200. people, whatever, thank you. So a half a percent, sorry. Half a percent of the nation was able to worship a golden calf a mere 40 days after uh, the Sinai experience and a mere three months after the Exodus. How is that possible? So that's the question. We see, on one hand, the same event and the same experiences, on one hand, we're told, is going to be the faith that we're going to uh, 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 nourish our spiritual life from for eternity. And today, today when you wake up, well, not today, Wednesday, tomorrow. We wake up and put on our tefillin. What are we doing? What? We're reliving the faith of Exodus. That happened 3,300 years ago. On Shabbat, we get the Kiddush and we announce, this is a remembrance of Egypt. We're having an experience of faith that's reliving what we, or that's, that's taking life from this experience. It means it's such a powerful event that it can, it can withstand thousands of years. That's that thermos that we talked about. Maintain the heat. Yet at that time, where obviously the impact is even more, is much greater, Pharaoh is able to ignore some segments of the Jews are able to ignore. That's, I think, the critical question that Diego was asking. Is that right? Mm-hmm. So, um, <laughs> thank you for that, Diego. <laughs> so, so, um, oh, there's another example I just saw in my notes that, um, we see during the plague of the hail. So the Egyptians were warned to bring in their stuff and their animals. Otherwise, they got destroyed. So it says that some Egyptians who feared God, they took, they took all their possessions and livestock in, and there are those who didn't pay attention to God, and they left them out and they were destroyed. 
So even at the time when you were warned, but by the way, there's you know it's like, it's like the people where the you know there's a hurricane, and then you have the people who just shack up and take their shotgun out. I ain't leaving, you know, you know they're those people, right? And then the ones have to be rescued. <laughs> those people. Yeah. So well, you have to have a shotgun, or else it's, you know, the, the image, the image, the imagery doesn't work. Like on their roof. You know, ready, ready to shoot anyone who comes to the property. So, uh, so you have, so, so it's, that's remarkable, and, and and I think it's 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 something to really a, a point to ponder. Um, how inspiration doesn't necessarily translate into change. You know, I have a friend who I like to debate a lot of uh, philosophy with. And uh, he tells me, listen, if we were to go to the bayou and someone did with a, some prophet will split the bayou, I'll believe. If I had the inspiration, I would live a life uh, of, of faith. That's what he tells me. And the question is, is he right? Does inspiration guarantee that it's going to make an impact? Clearly it does, and not with Pharaoh, and not with this small segment of the Jewish population we said. That's what he talks about. He says the people that are a healthy of mind, they don't crave uh, junk food. Basically. Yeah, but it's... it's yeah, it's, okay, 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 okay. So what, what, what you're saying, Tom, you. what, what you're saying, Tom, is that wherever this break is, I mean, there's, there's, there's some sort of disconnect. And this is back to the point that I brought all the way at the beginning. If you remember, we talked about this disconnect between the people that know texting is dangerous, yet do it anyhow. You, you know you're imperiling your life, but you do it anyhow. But do you truly know that? You and don't. You don't. Well, you don't, right? But why, why you not? You wouldn't do it if you did know. That's right. So you know it, but you don't know it. Exactly. That's you know. Exactly. So I, I have a, I have an example that I once uh, presented about this. You know, you. you um, so uh, I don't imagine many smokers here, but a lot of right. a lot of people smoke, right? And you just say smoke, smoking kills, and every every every, every like every time they open a package, it says smoking kills and smoking kills, and right? and well, they still smoke. Huh? Surgeon General warning, yeah. which is, or by the way, that's yeah, you, or no, you will die, right? Yeah. But you know, well, we all will die. We all die. Smoke, but that smoking kills, like you know, and you're just you're 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 inhaling poison now. And then that guy goes to his doctor, and the doctor shows him a picture of a lung. That's a healthy lung, and then he shows him a picture of your lung. He says, "Look, if you don't quit smoking, you will be dead in twelve months." And then they quit smoking. What happened? They knew already smoking. They knew smoking kills. Every kid knows smoking kills. But they didn't know it. You know? Mm-hmm. You know? So, so what you're saying is that there is even things that we know we know, we don't really know. That sounds silly. Yeah. Yes. That's something, it's like a motivational quote see someone post on Facebook, so, right? So the way I always tell people is there's, there's three things in life. There's that which you know you know. There's that which you know you don't know. There's that which you don't know you don't know. Yeah. So you think it out. Our job is to, to, to change that circle. The bigger part of the pie is that which we don't know. We don't realize how ignorant we are. Exactly. 
You know, you still you have um, you have um, you have I do know that I know that. Okay, you have uh, you have two, you have two children, you have two children. One of them, his mother, his or her mother told him, "Don't touch the stove, don't stick your hand on an oven grate, because you'll hurt your hand. It's very hot." Don't. No, no, this one kid. And don't stick your finger into the flame because it's very hot. You know? Um, that's... And does that kid believe that the fire is hot? Absolutely. Absolutely. And then there's the other kid who says, you know what? Let me try. And then they have a, they have a scar on their hand for, you know? They know tangibly that the fire is hot. You're right. <laughs> Our faith and the faith that's going to withstand all the tests and all the challenges that uh, uh, that we will be presented throughout the course of our lives, the faith that will endure is the faith where the knowledge is not a theoretical knowledge, it's a tangible knowledge. It's a real yeah. knowledge. And what, my, what the same Ramban is telling us, he says, we take this idea, this inspiration, and we don't just remember it. We remember how do we remember this faith? By implementing it into action. By doing a mitzvah, doing a mezuzah, wearing tefillin, keeping Shabbos, etc., etc. What that does is it concretizes this inspiration. It makes it something we know, but it makes it consume us from within. It makes us really know it, like tangible, like the kid who in the hand of the fire. We feel it in our bones. You shake us up from bed. We know it. It's, we don't have to think. We don't have to say, uh, I don't know. Uh, well, does God exist? Uh, let's, let's, let's. You know, it's, 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 it's that much alive within us. The faith is alive. It's not some dormant thing that we check off on Facebook, you know, as a polit- religious view. Uh, I don't know. Let's see. Okay, well, Jewish. Okay. You know, um, I'm not an atheist. No. Uh, yeah. Faith. Okay. It's something that we live what what makes that transformation? What takes the dormant faith and makes it alive? Right? Action. Action. Pharaoh had the same inspiration that everyone else had. Did it impact him? No! He didn't translate it into action. Perhaps we could say that the Jewish people at the foot of the mountain, what they have, they had inspiration. They had a whole lot of inspiration. Abundance and overabundance of inspiration. They had the plagues, they had the exodus, they had the sea, they had the Mount Sinai experience. Did they have any Torah? No. They didn't have this conduit, this link, this channel that's going to take this inspiration and make it alive. It was dormant. When they have dormant faith, they are liable to do anything. Any sin is possible. It's possible. Any sin is possible because it's inspiration. It doesn't impact their lives. The Chavonis tells us, how is this heat, this inspiration, going to impact us today? With mitzvahs, with Torah study, with, 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 keep, with observing of Shabbat, with, with having mezuzah, with having tefillin. That takes it, that bridges this, 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 this vast chasm that separates our intellectual understanding, our cognitive knowledge, and our actual tangible life-changing inspiration. So yes, perhaps that's the answer. Of course, if you if you were to shake those people awake and say, "Dude, 
Do you, be, do you believe that God, you know, not this silly uh, golden calf took us out of Egypt? Like, you were there. You, it was just for it. Yeah, maybe, you know, if you were able to sober them for a second, maybe they would know that. If you were to ask them the question, they would take time to think of it, then then maybe they would have, they probably, you would assume, they're not, unless they're imbeciles, you know, it's only three months ago they left you Egypt. But there was something lacking. And I, I think that maybe maybe this is really the lesson of the Parsha. The lesson of the Parsha is, it starts off with the inspiration, right? well, really, these past two Parshas. And then, what is the last thing that we learned? What's the very last thing we say in the Parsha? We're Tefillin and Mezuzah. Well, why? We're middle of the story of Exodus. It's a wonderful story. Why do you suddenly need to uh, inject this mitzvah? And that's, that, that, that's, like, that's like the final statement. You know, that's, that's, you know when you have a, an argument, when you have an argument in court, you know, there's always the final statement, you know, you know where you, the, each side has to present their final arguments. You know, to, that's the most important thing. What's the last sentence? And it should be a sign on your hand and a uh, totafos between your eyes for with a chosit yad, with a strong hand, the Almighty took us out of Egypt. You know, why are we talking about the mitzvah of tefillin that's going to happen? Why is that the punchline? I think perhaps it's because everything is contingent on that. This whole thing we talked about, the, the, the plagues were for us to build our, our, our faith profile. Everything was there and the nuances of faith you know, like we said, three levels beneath the ground, above the ground, and from the sky. All of that nuance in faith was for us. And it's a tremendous rush of inspiration. But what are we going to do with that? Is it going to impact us? It will. Contingent upon us living in this kind of life. And by the way, tefillin, just on a, on a side note, the reason why tefillin was chosen and maybe not Shabbos, like, well, why it says tefillin? Shabbos is also Zechel Tzitz Mishraim. Shabbos, we also, we say that the mitzvah of Shabbat is a remembrance for the Exodus from Egypt. Rosh Hashanah is as well. If you look at tefillin, tefillin has one compartment on the head and one near the heart. Right? One in the head. Why? Because tefillin is this idea called muchen, which is connecting the theoretical intellect with the heart. The heart is what, what's, what's within us, real, what, like, what our knee-jerk reaction uh, uh, to, to an issue is. Because that's what it's about. That's what this bit's about. It's not just a random, oh, yeah, okay, you know what? Uh, we have room, uh, with the editor has room for one more verse, uh, so we could use it for something. Let's think of a mitzvah. Okay, let's pick, we have 613 mitzvahs. Let's pick one of them out. Oh, uh, blah, blah, blah. Uh, don't mix it. Don't mix the metal meat. No, no, no. Uh, build a fence around your roof. Uh, maybe not. Uh, yeah. Chilling. You know, is that was that the selection process? No. Perhaps it's it's much much deeper. The Torah is hinting to us the lessons of all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. It's it's much more than that. Just to fill in is one of the ways, and uh, and it's symbolic of the symbolism of fill in. Is 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 this is bridging this this link? The, the, the tefillin on the hand, on the tefillin on the head, connection of mind and body, of heart and intellect, and making this inspiration last. Pharaoh didn't do it. Those people didn't do it, and therefore it didn't impact them. Why do you? And I don't mean to Why do you think tefillin is one? Yeah, I'm listening. Um. 
you, I, you know, I know a lot of people that listen. Um, um, it's it's a good question. It's 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 a very good question. I you know, and you find um, several mitzvahs that Jews, no matter how distant they are from Judaism, have always steadfastly observed. It was a very remarkable thing. Like if you notice, there's only two positive mitzvahs that carry with it. Positive, and that's supposed to be negative. The Torah is composed of 248 positive mitzvahs and 365 negative mitzvahs. A positive mitzvah is do X, Y, or Z, right? Wear tefillin, is another example. Have a circumcision, right? Do something. And a negative mitzvah is don't do something. Right? You know, don't, uh, you know, don't kill, don't cook, don't steal, right? Etc. Don't uh, don't eat a limb from a live animal, Avram and Achai. You know, it's a little weird, anyway, right? Something like there's some some things that you wouldn't want to do, anyhow. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> so, um, what was I saying? Oh yes. So there's only two positive mitzvahs that carry with it the gravity of Paris. Paris is uh, excommunication from the nation. It's like if someone, if the Torah says you do X, you get Paris, it means that this is a sin or a transgression that's so severe that if you uh, neglect it, you're basically saying, I'm out. You know, you're basically saying, I don't want to have any part of the Jewish people. So that's, there's many, many um, prohibitions, negative prohibitions that carry that, uh, that weight. Uh, a lot of the sexual sins, don't sleep with your mother, don't sleep with your sister, etc. Um, and uh, there are there are other ones, there are two positive mitzvahs that say, do this, and if you don't do this, you're you're out you're out of you're out of the nation. What are those two? Not feeling, not feeling, no, not love your God, not love God, not Shabbos. <laughs> no. If you don't, don't, don't do, do it, it you're, you're out. Keeping no. God, honor. No, all these, all these are great examples. Shiluch like, Hakan and an honor your parents are the two instances where it says that you will live longer. Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's right. If you don't do it, you're out. You're out. What do you mean live longer? You'll live longer. What about doing the Okay, I don't want to say. Don't worship the name of God. Well, that's a negative. That's a negative. Positive. Okay, I'll give you a hint. Ready? One of them, someone you do only once in your life. Oh, yeah, exactly. Circumcision. Well, you're not even part of the circumcision. Well, girls don't have to get circumcised because. That's a good question. It's been discussed. Uh, one of the commentaries said that uh, that well, why do we do circumcision? We have a whole class on this. Yeah, I don't want to schedule that. <laughs> you have your questions, but if you should tell me before I come here. I have to talk about it, and I'll speak about them. The second one is Passover, which is the well. You said that. I'm sorry. Yes, very good. Which is the e- the consumption of the Passover meal, and you look at the Jews. I find it remarkable that Jews. In America, everyone's circumcised. There's no such thing as, as Jews not. It's unheard of for 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 Jews to neglect. And in fact, circumcision is one of the mitzvahs that that the Jews have 
you know, give, you know, the, the, the Gentiles throughout the course of history, our various uh, foes, uh, have prohibited this mitzvah more than anyone else, like Hadrian and Antiochus, and even the Soviet Union in the, the past century, uh, where uh, you know uh, where Jews were prohibited from circumcision on pain of death. Um, so that's that, that's one, and the other one is 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 Pesach. Who doesn't observe Pesach? Who doesn't have some sort of Passover seder and eat the matzah and stuff like that? So so that's very interesting. That specifically these mitzvahs are the mitzvahs that the Jewish people. Uh, you know, across you know the entire spectrum of Jewish affiliation and interest and involvement, have uh, have steadfastly observed. Why they have neglected other mitzvahs is a mystery. Um, uh, it's it's a very good, very good thing to I think ponder. I, I don't I don't know necessarily. We'll do it the shul. Yeah, well, then I, I'm saying I see. I think the trend is uh, Jews uh, re-embracing. Uh, Torah, I think, well, you say, hey, look at the percentages in America and assimilation. Like, yes, uh, but I think 100 years ago was a lot worse than it is today. Jewish ignorance and apathy 100 years ago, in 1915, or even 150 years, uh, 100, 100, I'll say 100 years ago, was far worse than it is today. There's many more schools today. The the, the direction of, of the Jews in America uh, and the institutions in America is, is to embracing more and more Torah and more and more Israel, and in Israel, in Israel itself, like, you know, uh, a third of the members of the Knesset, which is not necessarily, you know, a total, uh, you know, uh, I guess a a microcosm of the people, but a third of them are Shomer Shabbat, Keep Shabbos, so are totally observant, which is remarkable, especially from where it was, the founding of the state was, uh, the early Zionists, not the religious Zionists, but the early Zionists, were were all about the idea of a state uh, where the need for religion uh, was was not present. The, the, the whole, you know, the argument of early Zionists were like Herzl. Herzl was as far as possible from observance of Torah. Uh, can you imagine? Like, you know, just totally. Uh, yet he was very very Jewish, but that was manifest in, in merely supporting a secular state in Israel. You know, and that that was the early idea of Zionism, which Even is a long beard. Oh yeah, he looked great. He was a good looking guy, also like majestic beard. beard, like all the way to his navel, like a navel beard. You know, slick hair. <laughs> so, um, so yes, but but and today where Israel is, you know, whenever Netanyahu speaks, he always has uh, the Talmud behind him. If you've noticed, anytime you like, go to Netanyahu's YouTube channel, anytime he speaks, there's the Talmud behind him and. And you know, every time that that, that uh, Shimon Peres speaks in the United Nations, he puts on a huge yarmulke. It's so big, it like covers yeah. his ears. Yeah. Looks like a steam mask or something like that. <laughs> what the uh, people wear when they go swimming to cover their hair. What, what, what's that called? Swim a swim cap. That's what it looks like. Uh, so yes, I think the general trend, even though you might not notice it, but if you look like on a bigger scale, where we were 100 years where we are today, how many millions and millions of Jews in Israel, for example, are, are, are very... Um, Aware of their Jewish identity and observant in, in you know various capacities, and even America, in America, like you look at this, you know where this you know Shalom Cyprus spring out, if you will. Nice, nice use of the word. Where did it spring out from? Um, it, you know, it's it's an example of young Jews. It's not spring. I know. That's a joke. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for uh, 
yeah, <laughs> for highlighting it. Uh, but it's an example of a trend that you see you see a lot, uh, where these young, growing, vibrant communities uh, exist. While it's not a, you know, it's not it's, it's not a done deal, and it's not you know we still have a long way to go. But the trend of Jews being interested, being involved, being affiliated, being associated uh, as Jews, and being proud to be Jews, and wanting to learn more, I think that's a real trend. So why why specifically Tefillin is not one? I, I don't know. That's it's, it's you know I know a lot of people like to wear Tefillin every day, um, but uh, I think as a general rule, there are two mitzvahs at least that Jews, uh, you know, as distant as they may be from from religion, uh, still keep. And I could, and I think those that it's it there's a deeper meaning behind that because they don't even realize most Jews. Yes, most Jews. You know, which two positive mitzvahs you know have the uh, gravity of car- no Jews want to know why, like why, like they don't know it. But I, I think it's kind of God's way of keeping the Jews close enough that they're not totally selling out from from their religion. They don't even know why. Like why is Passover something that's celebrated every every uh, supermarket in America as a Passover? Like why, like why, you know, why are Jews so into this? They, they themselves probably don't know. But I, like I said, it's it's I think it's God's way of saying, you know, my my children, my nation will never be too far away to actually. Totally, you know, and they don't know why. They don't know why circumcision. Like, why is that so critical? It's uh, now there's this whole big movement. Uh, it's mutilation. It's the, you know, it's it's. Uh, he says he tells us in the Torah that that's my sign. In that's right. You know, on you. That's right. My covenant right. sign in your on your flesh. Yeah, on your flesh. Yeah. My so I wanted to end and conclude with one nice, clever idea, because um, the, the theme that we're trying to draw from the Parsha, or the collection of themes, but the, the, the overarching theme is the idea of these stories not being just a mere uh, recounting of events. And their, the episode itself was not just about the events, it was about the lessons that, we could, we, that they learned and we could still learn from those episodes. And the idea of transforming, uh, transforming, okay, uh, I was half transferring, half transforming. <laughs> My brain works like that. Transforming. I like it. Not bad. Transforming. Transforming and transferring. I apologize. I do that a lot. My brain. I can't do it also. <laughs> um, and you've forgotten my kid tells me, my kid tells us, my two sons talk and say, I'm going to tackle you. Half attack, half tackle. (laughs) So, um, so uh, the idea of transforming or transferring this inspiration into into action into our lives. Um, But I wanted to share another idea um, just to cap it off, and that is that um, the uh, futility or uh, the ineffectiveness of inspiration alone. Uh, and in fact, as time progresses, there's the theta you have to pay. Um, and that is, as time progresses from the moment of inspiration, the inspiration gets weaker. So like, uh, as an example, back to, to the text messaging, if you, you know, I once saw someone posted on Facebook, someone posted, um, it was like one of those uh, don't, don't text while driving kind of PSAs, and it showed a picture of this, of the small, of the small little sports car, and it, it just being in total pieces, and it said very graphically, very in grisly, gory details 
that the guy still had his phone in his hand, but his head was in the back seat. Ooh, you know, don't text and drive. You know, so if you were the guy that you, if you were to see that, if someone were to have that moment, they would immediately on the spot, what would they declare? I am never texting and driving. And uh, but that, there's all the way to respond to that. You know, inspiration is going to automatically just—you'll think perhaps it's going to cause you to, you know, to, to make a declaration, to make a decision, or to change your life, right? But then, you know, two, three months later, they forget about it, and then they want to know, like, oh, what should I pick up in Costco? Oh, well, there's not so many cars around, you know, <laughs> right? And what happens? Inspiration has a shelf life. And progressively, as you as you move away from that point of inspiration, the inspiration gets weaker and weaker. Uh, unless you take inspiration at the moment while the fire is hot, while the while the iron is hot, and you translate that into an action, it's going to perpetuate that inspiration. So there's a great story in the Talmud. Once again, back in the dark, captain in the dark, uh, the attractive in the dark, uh, talks about there's this law in the Torah called the Nazir. Nazir doesn't drink wine, doesn't doesn't come in contact with dead people uh, for a minimum of thirty days. But at the end of the thirty days, they go to the temple, they're being sacrificed, and they cut off all their hair. Right? <coughs> they don't get a haircut for thirty days. Afterwards, they cut off all their hair. Well, at the time of the temple, right? We don't have this law anymore. But there are. Are there? I don't know any. You know a Nazir? Who, Ray Matis Yahu? No, not Matis Who's the rapper guy? Well, either no, way, if someone, it's, it's very complicated laws. If someone were to become a Nazir today, they would, never, they would have no way to get out of it. Because yeah. part of the process of becoming a Nazir is going to the temple, bringing a sacrifice, and having your hair cut off, and that completes, completes the cycle. So if someone, is an, if someone is able to become a Nazir, they're not able to unbecome a Nazir. Kind of do that. Either way, the Talmud uh, declares that the rabbis were very not fond of someone to becoming a Nazir. Why? Because the Torah says, listen, God said we could drink wine. You know? Don't be holier than the church, so to speak. You know? There's enough. Daimasha Asra Torah. There's enough for the Torah itself prohibited. You don't have to add new prohibitions to drink wine. It's enough. Like, don't think you're so holy and they'll say, you know, ah, ah, I'm going to be even more religious. I'm going to make new prohibitions. This Torah is very not fond of that. And in the course of the Talmud discussing that, it says that Rabbi Shimon said there was only one example that I saw of a, of a Nazir who did it properly. And he tells the story. There was this young boy, uh, this young man, who came from the south. He came from the Darom. And he came to the temple. So Rabbi Shimon, who was, who, uh, he was the Kohen Gadol. Uh, and he tells him, why are you cutting off your hair? He had beautiful locks. He described his beautiful locks and hair. Why, why, are you, why, are you cutting off your, why are you coming here to be a Nazir? Why, why did you, you're cutting off your beautiful hair? What a waste, he tells him basically. So he said to him, um, this individual, this Nazir, tells him, the reason why is because I was a shepherd for my father's animals, and I uh, was once um, walking and I passed by a stream, and I saw my reflection in the stream, and I saw that I was so strikingly handsome. And uh, because I had such beautiful hair, it looked so handsome. And my Yetzer my temptation, wanted to engulf me. I was going to say, oh my gosh, I'm going to capitalize this on this with the women. So, and then I said to myself, 
he has a self-dialogue. He says, Russia, sinful one, this is not yours to enjoy. And I pledge then to become a Nazir, because a Nazir is someone who eventually, after 30 days, has cut their hair. That's what it says. So the commentaries ask, if you decided that you have such beautiful hair, and that hair is going to compel you to sin, what should you do? Go to the barber, or to the hairstylist, or go to the drawer, grab some scissors, and cut off your hair. It's like, so... I dropped off. Yeah. <laughs> Think about it. That's, that was his inspiration for becoming an Azir. Because he had such beautiful hair, and the hair was compelling him to sin. There's much easier ways to navigate out of this problem of having such beautiful hair than having become an Azir, spend a minimum of 30 days not consuming wine, not coming in contact with that people, not cutting your hair. At the end of 30 days, you come to the temple, make a sacrifice, and cut off all your hair. There's so much simple ways. What you, if your hair is bothering you, come to your hair. Mazalto. What do you have to worry about anything else? That's just like this. The Talmud tells you all the details that you need to know, nothing more, nothing less. Talmud tells you this guy was a shepherd. Why is it Talmud was a shepherd? Say that there was a young man who saw his reflection and he wanted to, he wanted to uh, have sin and became an azir. Because he was a shepherd. The answer is that he was a shepherd. What does a shepherd do? He goes with his flock and goes out and feels the grace. The reason why he decided to become an azir is because he realized that he had an inspiration to cut off his hair. He was out in the fields, away from any scissors or any barber. And he knew that if he were to walk now back with his flock, 15 minutes to the town, get his hair, that inspiration that he had, it, looking at his reflection, that dissipation would dissipate. And by the time he was going to find a scissors, he say, yeah, I don't know, maybe I'll just keep it for a little bit. Therefore, he said, what can I do right now? Look at him in my reflection. What can I do right now? To ensure I cut my hair, there's only one thing. That's to accept upon myself the pledge of being an Azir. The idea being is that even like any inspiration we have in life, you know, any inspiration, there is a, uh, a ticking time bomb. It's going to dissipate. You know, I like to say, we're having a discussion now. Hopefully, there's some inspiration. You're going to walk out the door, and it's going to start dissipating. Like the, like, like the footballs on Sunday. <laughs> it's slowly going to dissipate, you know? And then by next week, inspiration will probably be gone. We'll probably buy it tomorrow. <laughs> but that's the way it works, you know? If we want to take this inspiration with us, what do we have to do? I don't know what we have to do. That's probably up to each one of us as an individual. But whatever we have to do, we have to do right now. As we walk out the door, and we go back, and we turn on the car, we hit listen to the radio, and we go out to the home, put on the television, it's gone. It's gone so fast, faster than a New York minute. <laughs> so that's the idea. That's the lessons that we learned from the parsha. The tremendous uh, um, achievements and in inspiration that the Jewish people had with the, with the, ten, with the, with the ten plagues. They counterized it with mitzvahs. They didn't have the mitzvahs, so they were at risk of not uh, living up to that inspiration. And any inspiration that you do have is steadily decreasing at a rate that an incredible clip. And if you do not translate it into some sort of actionable uh, living of that inspiration, you will lose it. You and I guarantee it. it. Exactly. Mm.
Well, we will call the door, we will give our keys to the masseuse, and when we get home, before going to sleep, we say a Shema. That's right. I, I, yes, that would work. Um, <laughs> uh, yes, but we're right now looking at a reflection, and we're saying, oh, I want to cut off this here. Like but we know, by the time we get home, inspiration will be done. So that's that, guys. Tons of fun. Thank you all for listening, Thank and uh, we'll do this again. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, and if, if you have any topics that you would like to discuss and we something's came up you can email ben or email me or, or text me um i don't want my number it's exactly and no writing notes while I'm driving Right. Yeah. Texting is wrong, but writing on, writing on a piece of paper, that's okay. It's a little safe. I have both hands of the steering wheel. I use the steering wheel if I have to write. I do. Or I, dread, I steal my name. Oh, oh, yeah. oh it's okay. That's safer. Yeah. You can write with your feet. Uh, so, yeah, so please, I, w- I would love it. I would love it if, if people would uh, 